let's let's pray now lord thank you for this this day of worship and we do pray for the goose creek campus and we ask that you would bless that ministry so that the gospel would be broadcast and heard and embraced um, by men and women in whose hearts you are now working and that family units would walk under the banner of christ who today do not have an understanding of the glory of god in christ Um, so energize this ministry we pray for the allens as they go out we pray for our middle schoolers as we have some 75 going on a week trip of missions to uh, Asheville this week. Bless Danny Beach as he leads them. We pray for our vacation Bible school and the 650 to 700 people that will be here morning and night uh, to learn the things of God. Lord, shape the lives of these children. Bless Steve Tuck as he leads. Uh, so in all these things, we pray that you would be honored in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, church, very quickly, want to say thank you very much. Last week, you were kind in uh, honoring Sarah and me on our 30th anniversary here. Uh, so, so thankful. It's, it's, it's a joy to be here. So thank you for that. And that is a backdrop. We're going to talk about sex this morning. <laughs> because we're in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, it's, it's, it's there. We, we go through books of the Bible. When we hit an issue, we... We address it. So, First uh, Thessalonians chapter four, verses three through eight. Hear the word of the Lord. It is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn how to control his own body, not in a way, or to control his body in a way that is holy and honorable, not in passionate lust like the Gentiles or the pagans or the nations, in other words, those those outside of the community of faith, not in passionate lust, like the Gentiles who do not know God, and that in this matter no one should wrong his brother or take advantage of him. The Lord will punish men for all such sins as we have already told you and warned you. For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. Therefore, he who rejects this instruction does not reject man, but God who gives you his Holy Spirit. Well, Paul starts off by saying, this is God's will that you be sanctified, that you continuously be sanctified. Uh, Sanctification is... A process. Here's a definition. Sanctification is being made holy in heart and conduct. It is a process that's never complete. We are never done with sanctification. It is incomplete in this life. There, one confession of faith says there arises in our members a war where the flesh lusts against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. It is a continuous And it is an irreconcilable war. We are never done with the fight against sin. And so Paul says to this small church in this incredibly carnal city, he says, this is God's will, that you guys be sanctified. That that you avoid sexual immorality. Now you have to realize, in this culture, 
especially, well, really exclusively for men. If you were a man, it was normal to have a wife and then to have a lover on the side. And then even to have slaves that met that need as well. I mean, it was a wild, libertine, blow-the-doors-off culture. And so when the church comes along and, and they say with great clarity, Thou shalt not commit adultery. Let the marriage bed be undefiled. Sexual intimacy is only for marriage. It was a startling and mind-blowing concept. And so Paul says unequivocally, it is God's will that you be sanctified. And part of your sanctification is this, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that, that you be people who learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honorable, not in passionate lust like everybody else in Thessalonica. You were called to a different standard because you march under the banner of Christ. Now, in the Westminster Confession, it's in the bulletin, the, the issue is, you know, how, how do we grow in sanctification? How do we grow in sanctification? I love the way they say it. Basically, it says you grow in sanctification as you focus on the reality of the cross and the resurrection and as you live in the word by the Holy Spirit. You focus on the cross and the resurrection and you live by the Spirit in the word of God. For example, let me read Colossians 3 verse 5. It says this, verse 5 says, Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature. It's right into the church. Put to death, therefore. That's present tense. It's not past tense. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature. Now, now let me just say this. Be good students of the Bible. And if you're a good student of the Bible, you read the passage in context. Don't pull out a verse and just start beating people over the head with it. This can happen here. You say, well, what about sexuality? Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature. And he says sexual immorality, impurity, covetousness, greed, which is idolatry. Put to death, therefore. The question is, what does therefore refer to? <laughs> therefore refers to verses 1 through 4, where he writes this. Since then, you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Be intoxicated with the greatness of Christ, in other words. Verse 2, set your, your minds on the things above, not on earthly things, for you died in Christ. And your life is now hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears then you will appear with him in glory, put to death, therefore. You see, see the difference? Instead of just saying, you say, behold the beauty of Christ. That's sanctification. And part of sanctification is, is understanding church. Listen, I talked to a family this week, and, and the wife said, you know, when our kids were growing up, whenever we talked about this issue, the husband would always say, well, first of all, let me say this. God is good and his way is best. That's a great way to start. When you come to sanctification, you're a child of God. You say, isn't it glorious that God is for us? And when God asks us to do anything, he asks us as our Abba Father, our dear Father. In, in Jeremiah chapter 32, the Lord is wooing the people of Israel back to himself. 
And this is what it says, verse 38. It says, they will be my people and I will be their God and I will give them singleness of heart and action so that they will always fear me for their own good and the good of their children after them. Isn't that beautiful? I will give them singleness of heart and action so they'll reverence me. They'll worship me for their own good and the good of their children after them. Or John chapter 10, Jesus says, I am the gate. Whoever enters and goes out by me will find pasture. I have come that you may have life and have it abundantly. See, God's commands are always for our welfare. So that, that's where you start. It's being made holy in heart and conduct. And so this is, a, this is a very difficult statement to this church at, at Thessalonica uh, that, that, that Paul had, had, uh, had, had seen birth. And, and then he, he says, you know, you've got to form a, a counterculture that holds forth the dignity of Christ and, and the beauty of the gospel. So I want to walk with you. I've got a little chart in your worship guide. Um, and just to compare and contrast, and I'll go through this. Well, so there's two great conflicting views today and in the day of the New Testament regarding sexuality. Uh, on one, one side, it says, people say, it seems to me, quote, unquote, well, it, it just seems to me that fill in the blank. As I reason in my own mind or in our own little group, it seems to me. The other side says, you know, Paul says, it is God's will. It is God's will that you should be sanctified. It is God's will that you should avoid sexual immorality. It is God's will that you should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honorable, not impassionate, less like the Gentiles. And, and so the, the people who say, it seems to me, here's what they say. Creation is, number one, some people say creation is glorious and God made everything, but he's the absentee landlord. He's walked away. That's deism. Kind of sort. He, he made the heavens and the earth. They're beautiful, but God has walked away. God has not spoken. God, God is, but he hasn't spoken. That's one group. There's a lot of people like that today. And so they say, therefore, either the Bible's antiquated or it just seems to me. There's a second group that says that all creation is the impersonal plus time plus chance. There, there's no rhyme to rhythm. It's just a, a giant accident. We're glad it happened because I'm here in some type of wild protoplasmic clash but it's the impersonal plus time plus chance therefore god is not probably and he definitely has not spoken there's a third group the third group says that that and this was very popular in the day of the new testament and i, I think it's very popular today in fact there's a book i read a couple years ago called the neo-gnostic capture of western civilization Let me explain it the third group says that that Creation is a work of a lower deity, and therefore creation is nothing but a putrid mess. There is something called Gnosticism, which means Gnosis in the early church. And one of the leading guys was a guy named Valentius. Valentius was the leading Gnostic, and he says there are 30 emanations of, of beings from the supreme being who cannot be defined and cannot be known. And with each, each descending emanation, you have 
you have a, a lesser and lesser and lesser and lesser and lesser deity until the 30th emanation of this deity made earth. But this emanation is the 30th one down. And he, he was impure, and, and therefore earth, earth is a putrid mess. Earth is not beautiful. It's, 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 just, it just, it's just a mess. And so, so God has not spoken, and God is, but God cannot be defined. And I believe a lot of people live there. A lot of people believe that. So if God hasn't spoken, and you can't really define God, it leads to sexual living is merely an urge or an impulse to be satisfied. It's just an impulse to be satisfied. That's why Paul says, you know, the, the non-believers live in this area with, in passionate lust, which means that it's just, they just live the way they want to. Passionate lust, they just respond. He says, we don't live that way. And so when you believe that, you, you see slogans, you hear slogans, here's some of them. That's not it. Slogans. If you start reading popular culture, you're going to hear more and more people talking about the myth of monogamy. And the myth of monogamy says, you know, saying that we should be faithful to one person of the opposite sex throughout our lives, which is what we've been told is proper, is just silly because we're part of the animal kingdom. The only other, there, there aren't any animals that have lifelong mates. They just have mating seasons. Maybe the spotted owl or the fighting gamecock. I don't know, but have, have, have lifelong, I don't know. There, there are a couple out there, but... But, you know, it's just, it's just a myth because we're, we're just part of the animal kingdom. It, it is silly to lay this on us. And then something became very popular 30 years ago. I heard it frequently is the ethics of intimacy. The ethics of intimacy is really, it's, it's a Gnostic movement. It, it's because, because God makes this, but he has not spoken. Here's the statement. When... When you exercise your sexuality, make sure you care about the person that you exercise it with. Any junior high boy will tell you that's a very difficult thing to define. And then his twin cousin, or twin, first cousin, responsible sexual expression. I can't tell you how to live. I just want you to be responsible about your sexual expression. I don't even know what that means. It depends on who's making that statement. If my grandmother made that statement to me, I know what she would mean, God rest her soul. But if some sex education experts made that statement today, I would have no idea where to begin with that. So, so it, it leads to, but see, these people, God bless them, they all begin from the premise that God might be, but he has not spoken definitively. We, on the other hand, if you're a Christ follower, we say God is eternally triune. Today is Trinity Sunday. He is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There was never a time when God was not. He is eternally triune, and He has spoken. We believe God made the heavens and the earth and proclaimed them to be very good. And we believe that man is the crowning work of God's creation and that all men and women are made in the image of God and they are worthy of respect and Christian love. Therefore, all of creation is a gift from a glorious God who has spoken. Everything 
and we rejoice in it. And, and so if, if, if a proto-Gnostic heard us reading Psalm 139, for example, he would say, you know, that's just nonsense. Listen to Psalm 139. Just, just part of it. The scripture says, Where can I go from your spirit, or where can I flee from your presence? If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I go on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me, and your right hand will hold me fast. You hem me in behind and before. You have laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. It's not the impersonal. God knit me together in my mother's womb. That's why we're pro-life, by the way. One of many reasons. Knit together in the mother's womb. I am fearfully and wonderfully made fearfully god is and and see that that, that's why when when you when you when you go get a burrito this week and you stop and you pray over your guacamole you are saying i'm doing this because i walk before a god whom he made the green guacamole and he made the 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 tomato-based red sauce and he made the whole wheat wrap and it's glorious so this glorious god is fully revealed in jesus therefore i thank you O lord for this burrito the so good and i thank you that you gave it to me and i thank you that you are god and i pray in the name of the one who is the ultimate expression of all that you are jesus amen and if people are looking at you take a bite and say man god made the guacamole now, if you're Gnostic, you say, well, it's nothing. It's just prefabricated from California and no big deal. Big, no, we say, no, God made this. God made this. And so when a child is birthed, we celebrate the birth of the child because this child was made by the Lord of all glory who knit this child together in his mother's womb. Well. If you're Gnostic, you go, this is pretty cool, but it's just a big accident. There's nothing special about the blue eyes and the tender ears and the digits. There's nothing special. So no, man, this child, and not only that, he's made in the image of God. And this child is worthy of respect and Christian love. See, see that? Huge difference. And, and so, so, so we say that sexuality is a gift from God. To be richly enjoyed in marriage. And and, and so it's our responsibility to learn, present tense, to learn, past says, to control your body in a way that is holy and honorable. Al Mohler said this. He's president of Southern Baptist Seminary, wonderful man. He says, whatever God made is good. And every good thing God made has an intended purpose that ultimately reveals his own glory. When conservative Christians respond to sex with ambivalence or embarrassment, we slander the goodness of God and hide God's glory, 
which is intended to be revealed in the right use of creation's gifts. Just read the rest of the article and go online and read it. It's a great article. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. And, and then, I'm, I'm going to go back to the other side of the column. It, it seems to me, crowd, this leads to sexual nihilism, which, which means sex has no purpose and life has no purpose. And that's why I think sometimes we look at young people and say, don't, don't do this because it may destroy your life. And when you're 50 or 55 or 60, you'll, you'll regret it. And they go, man, give me a break. I don't want to live to be 50. Really. I want to go out like a flame. Really. They, they don't. So a lot of our arguments just, it just they bounce it's like they just bounce off. Or sexual paganism. Sexual paganism, very interesting. Sexual paganism is a movement in our culture. There's a guy named Thomas Moore who wrote a book in 1992. I read part of it. I thought, I thought, I just, I'm just, maybe I'm having a bad day. I can't understand this book. And then I read, researched his life, and he, he's kind of a lapsed priest who's become wild, called The Care of the Soul. It was a New York Times bestseller. But he's kind of one of the guys that talks about sexual, he said, they call it sexual paganism. And what they say is that when you have intimacy, I hate to use that word in their context, but when you have an encounter, that energy is released from you and them and you become part of the culture and the only taboo is to ever say to anybody you should not have sex they should have sex as often as we want with whomever you want as many times as you want because there's a there's a power that's released in sexuality that is healing it's true just this is we say that's weird and i think it is believe me but they say man you're weird to say that sex is only for marriage so it, but when, when you reject the God who is, you, you go off in a thousand different directions. And many people into deeper and deeper depravity. And that, that's why this whole thing about, about saying we cannot define marriage, to me, maybe, in many ways, it, it may be the final nail in the coffin of Western civilization to a degree. If you cannot define normative sex in a context called marriage, I, I don't know where you go. Why can't you say two men and five women is a marriage? Or five women and one man or whatever. I don't know. So, so anyway, at least nihilism. Um, and, and, and there's an article released this week um, in the popular press. And they did a little bit of research that there is now a sexually transmitted disease that is resistant to antibiotics. It's the most, second most popular tra sexually transmitted disease. And there's a lot of information about it. And then I went on the website for the Center for Disease Control, and they have a new article on how to, how to combat gonorrhea. And I'll just show you part of the answer. This is just part of the answer. The first part is, I didn't want to share it with you because I'm trying to keep this PG-13. I failed, but I'm going to try to. This is the most certain way to avoid gonorrhea is not to have sex or to be in a long-term, mutually monogamous relationship with a partner who's been tested and is known to be uninfected. Okay, that's what they say. Now, I, I'm trying to keep this PG-13, so I'd ask you maybe to close your eyes and stop your ears because I'm going to use a word that our culture considers to be antiquated and really arrogant that they didn't use in that statement 
but we can use it here. So please close your ears. Your ear is an eight-letter word, and it is repulsive. Alert. Ready? Marriage. Long-term relationship. Monogamous long-term. Come on. Just say have sex the way God wants you to have sex and you won't get gonorrhea. (laughs) Seriously. Do it God's way, folks, and you'll be fine. No long-term monogamous relationship with someone who's been tested and tried and laborized. Come on. So on the other side of the column, the above leads to sexual fulfillment by understanding that sexual intimacy can be richly fulfilled in marriage as God intended it. As Lewis said before he was married to C.S. Lewis, he said, when you come to follow Jesus, you have one option, sex in the wonderful bonds of marriage, period. He's right. Sex is God intended it, and God is for us. This is what Augustine said. And Augustine, it's very interesting. He said, he said, felicity is not a goddess, well-being, well-living, but a gift of God. And therefore, no God, he's talking about the Roman gods and the Greek gods, no God is to be worshipped by men except the God who can make men happy. That's Augustine. Now, I, I look at this and I go, the Lord's way is glorious and it is good. And he desires to bless his people. And quite frankly, the end result of living in the seems to me culture is I think you're abandoned by God. And for us, we very soberly say, the Lord will punish men for all such sins. This is a grave issue. It's a grave issue. And, and if you're a Christ follower and you're involved in sex outside of marriage right now, you repent and you run to the cross. And you go to an elder or a leader and you say, pray for me, lay hands on me, plead that God would release me from this incredibly powerful addiction, potentially. You repent. Man, if you're, if you're a pornography dude, man, throw your computer away. There's a lot that's worse than not having the internet. Because it's God's desire that we control our bodies in a holy and honorable way, not in passionate lust. I mean, the, the, the world is passionate lust, no big deal. And listen to me, you, you guard yourself. Because God wants to bless you. And God is saying, walk down this road. Walk down this road. And if you've minimized sex in your marriage and you're not seeking to please and honor each other in that area, you repent. You read 1 Corinthians 7 and get on your face and you repent. I'm not going to go there. This is PG-13, but you just go to 1 Corinthians 7. It says, he who rejects this does not reject man, but he rejects God who gives us his Holy Spirit. Those are strong words. You're, you're, not, you're not rejecting man. I mean, I, 80% of what I say is probably wrong. My wife would say maybe that's low. No, really. 
there, you, you read man's wisdom and study and demographic research. But you know what? Like Luther said, one little word would fail him. See, right here. This is it. What has God said? God says you should live in a holy and honorable way, folks. So, a couple of points here. Uh, thank you, Dean, for giving me all this time. I appreciate it. I told Dean I was preaching on sex. He said, take all the time you want, brother. <laughs> he said, bring it on, man. Bring it on. Okay. Anyway. <clears throat> I'm just kidding. <laughs> he really did say that. I'm just kidding. Um, I want you to hear this. Pragmatic arguments in this area have limited impact. By that I mean this. Don't do this because if you do that, you'll do, this will happen. I, I understand that's true and that's part of the landscape. I, I just, I feel like when you use pragmatic arguments that, that when, when, when in the heat of the moment, I, th- I think that your passions are going to win. Four times out of five. Or eight times out of ten. Or 16 times out of ten. Okay. And this is why there's a quote in the bulletin from a guy named Thomas Carl. This is one of the most significant. I've got the title there so you can look it up and read it. It is such a powerful statement. He's a Scott theologian, mathematician by background, and he says this, there are two ways in which a practical moralist may attempt to displace from the human heart its love of the world. Either by demonstration of the world's vanity so that the heart should be prevailed upon simply to withdraw its regard from the object that is not worthy of it. You show show the vanity of this living. You study the life of great sexual libertines. And you say, this is the way their life ended. And it all ended in despair. That's one way. Or we talk about diseases. We talk about the breakup of homes. So forth and so on. Or, by setting forth another object, the worship and glorification of, of God, as more worthy of its attachment so as that the heart shall be prevailed upon not to resign an old affection but to exchange an old affection for a new one and then he says this it is not enough that we dissipate the charm by a moral and eloquent and affecting exposure of its elusiveness it doesn't last it's a vapor like sexual nihilists, you say to them, man, when you're 40 or 50, you'll regret living like this in your teens and 20s and 30s. And they say, who cares, man? Okay, this okay, is elusiveness. We must address to the eye of his mind another object with a charm powerful enough to dispossess the first of his influences by presenting another object that is more alluring. And he goes on and says, and that object is the glory and the majesty of Jesus Christ. If we don't teach and beg and plead and pray that our people vehemently glory in, love, worship, adore Jesus by the power of the Spirit, we've taken 
the argument we have from our arsenal and thrown it aside. You can argue all day long about elusiveness, about you reap what you sow, and we should. We should. But the argument is, behold the beauty and the majesty of Christ. That's why you go back to Colossians 3 where Paul says, therefore, or put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature is based upon you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, you will appear with him in glory. Therefore, put to death. It is, behold the majesty of God. Behold the, the beauty of God. We're just saying in here, all thy works shall praise thy name in earth and sky and sea. God made everything. And I'm going to just say this. Are we collectively, individually, are we deepening our worship of God? Are we glorying in Christ? Are we following more deeply and passionately in love with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? Do we glory in Him? Or, or is this kind of sort of a duty that we do and it's good because this is kind of who we claim to be? I, I want to be passionate about the worship of God. We have vacation Bible school this week. We're going to have morning and night here 700 people running all over the place. Maybe more. It's a huge week. Thank you for serving. Huge week. All these kids running around. And it's just wonderful. And I want these children to, to, to hear that God made puppies. And God made colors. And God made ice cream. He's a creator God who loves you. And, and, but the greatest gift is that God became a man. And he showed us how to live. And in their little minds, and the supreme statement of his love is that he died on the cross. For our sins. What's a sin? Well, a sin is when you don't tell your mom and dad the truth. Or a sin is when you get angry with your sister. Oh. Oh. When I was younger and my kids sat in my lap, we had a book, a Bible story book. We'd read in these stories and we'd sing every night, almost every night. I'd sing them to sleep and with and can it be. So whenever we sing that in church, they <laughs> they start slobbering and you know. We had this Bible story book, and it was about when Jesus healed the the man who was blind. And I read it two weeks ago. How the first time he touched his eyes and. He saw men as trees walking. And then he touched him again. <clears throat> and the storybook says that when the man looked up, he saw trees and birds for the first time. And he saw people. And he saw colors. But then it says this. But the best thing he saw, he saw Jesus. It just so moves me. That, yeah, I, I love creation. 
the God of creation is Jesus. No. And if we don't show that to our people, our children, God is gloriously good. Now, very quickly, I'll skip that. Okay, the, the joy of our calling. One of the best things we can do is, is, is to rejoice in our calling. If we're called to be married, rejoice in your marriage. If you're called right now to be single, rejoice in being single, knowing that God will meet your needs. You know, just to single people, very quickly, um, cherish your spouse. Just cherish them. In Proverbs 5, it says this. It's filled with imagery that I can't talk about because this is PG-13. But in Proverbs 5, it says, May your fountain be blessed. May you rejoice in the wife of your youth, a loving doe, a graceful deer. May her breast satisfy you always. May you ever be captivated by her love. Captivated. I love captivated. May you ever be captivated by her love. There's a quote in here from the bulletin from a a wonderful book. 86% of it is fine. The rest of it is not that great, but 86% is good. It's a book called Ravished by Beauty. And he talks, about, he talks about the Puritans and how the Puritans loved their wives. And he said how the Puritans talked about their wives as being, in part, the center of the beauty of creation. <laughs> and then this is what he says. The Puritans were bold in defending the sanctity of sexual pleasure in marriage. They rejected the Roman Catholic claims that the marital relations of husbands and wives can be justified only as a matter of duty and not a desire. Puritan marriage manuals. The Puritans were 1560 to 1660. Puritan marriage manuals forthrightly defended mutual dalliances for pleasure's sake. And that's intimacy. Within the marriage covenant, urging that the husband and wife mutually delight in each other, maintaining a fervent love in their regular yielding of, quote, due benevolence one to another, which is warranted and sanctified by God's holy word, close quote. Hallelujah. Amen. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. You know, seriously, I have to just say, church, ask God to allow you to Cherish and rejoice in your spouse and to love them and to love the goodness of God's gifts. And, and, and if he's called you to singleness, just say, God, thank you that you've called me to this and you have asked me to be a, a man or a woman who honors you in a holy and honorable way. God is good. Okay. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for today. Uh, thank you for the privilege of, of being your people. Thank you that you have not left us in a wilderness of existential angst, 
where we look at each other and say, if there is God, he has not spoken. And we just have to live on the basis of, quote, it seems to me, close quote. God forbid. God forbid. Thank you that we stand with brokenness and love and say to one another and say to those around us that do not know Christ, it is God's will. It is God's will. That, that, that we should honor you with our body, that we should be sanctified, that we should live in a holy and honorable way, not in passionate lust, like, like people who do not know that God is and he has spoken, who are pushed and compelled and prodded by their, by their emotions and their impulses and their drives. That is not who we are. And I pray that as our culture seemingly in many ways is slipping more and more into the twilight of the the, the experience that the church at Thessalonica had around them, that we would be a marvelous minority of people who stand up and with joy and laughter and celebration say, praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we just live as your called out people. Oh God, work in us this week. May your kingdom go forth this week in leaps and in giant strides all over this city, all over this country and world, and in this little church, this little group of people here called East Cooper. May may the kingdom of God advance through the middle school trip and through vacation Bible school and through people who are just celebrating the goodness of God and talk to their neighbors. Thank you. Thank you that you are and you're good and you have spoken and you give us a place to stand. In Jesus' name, amen.